Hello and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Sebastian Barry, whose latest novel, The Secret Scripture, has just been shortlisted for the 2008 Booker Prize. Rosanne McNulty is approaching her 100th birthday. As she passes her time in an Irish mental hospital, she tries to make sense of her past, and in doing so, she illuminates a period of her country's past when people could be locked away for not conforming to what society demanded of them. When I met Sebastian, I asked him if Ireland's troubled 20th century history made the Irish novelist an offer he couldn't refuse. Well, we have a, an embarrassment of histories in Ireland. We have so many of them, and one of the hardest questions to answer is where does Irish history start? Do you go back to the fear bog? Do you go back to mythical history? These small people that later became fairies and stories and all the rest of it. Or does modern Irish history start in 1916 with the rising and the battle for independence and the civil war? Is that where it starts? So what do we do with the fact that we have fabulous histories from the 17th century and 16th century and the history of the Normans in Ireland in the 12th century? What do we do all with, with all that? What do we do with the history of English in Ireland? history of the language. And I think it's that sense of the, the stall of Irish histories being so plumped up. It's almost always Christmas time in the stall of Irish history. There's lots of rabbits of history and pheasants of history and turkeys of history. And there is a generation now in Ireland I don't think bothers so much about it because Ireland has become wealthy and is healthily looking to the present, that other mysterious place. But for an old-fashioned person like me, I still think that a family like my own family, since I've written mostly novels and plays about stray remnant people in my own family who wouldn't have been mentioned for various reasons, political or moral even, uh, as in this book, because that creates so many gaps, I've been going back to find all these people for the last, the best part of the last 25 years and they're to be found, it's just the fact is they, the field that they are found in is history. But at the same time when I was a child at school I, I read history as if it was the news and when I go back in the, in the, to the so-called 30s and 40s of the last century for a book like this it isn't history to me. It is, it is very much the present. I, I'm missing that part of the brain that, that tells you the difference between the present and the past. It all feels only too present to me. So that's, that's a particular perspective on history. So in that sense, you can go out with your sickle and your hoe and harvest what you think needs to be harvested. And sometimes in the long grass, of course, you're finding remnants and bodies and bones that you didn't know were there and that's part of, strangely enough, of the excitement of writing, of going back. You mentioned remnants of your own family history and I've, I've seen you uh, talk about the fact that Rosanne McNulty, one of the two narrators in this book, was based on, on a woman in your own family's past. Yeah, and I almost hesitate to connect it to her because there's 
a sort of arrogance in doing so. I mean, I, I invoke her, and she co certainly caused, was the cause of the book, the cause celebrity, you might say, that caused the book. But I don't know who she was, I don't know her name. So, in my usual way, I've, I've invented a book for her, but one of my great uncles did marry a woman, and then for some reason, he was a rising young politician in Sligo, and for some reason she was considered unsuitable, and she was tucked away into an asylum in Sligo sometime in the 30s, and forgotten about. So much so that when my great-uncle married again, and in the course of time died himself, his new family, his children, were shocked, astonished, and a possibly even offended to discover the father had been married before and they had never known anything about it. Because I think he'd had the marriage annulled, which is one of the stories of the book. And an annulment of marriage doesn't mean a divorce, of course. You're told that your marriage never existed. Roseanne holds on to her, her name, McNulty, even though she knows that by law, by Vatican efforts, that's part of her life has been erased. So I saw this in 1989, my mother, I was knocking around Sligo with my mother, who was from Sligo, and who, who would have been a niece of this woman? And she showed me the house, little tin hut in Strand Hill, where they'd put her before they committed her. And she said, that's where that woman lived. And she didn't even have a name for her. And the next time I went down to Sligo, nothing remained of it but the chimney, like in a Wild West story. And then just recently when I went down, nothing remained at all. They had removed the entire place. So as they removed the entire place, I suppose I've been trying to put this in its place as moral to her, but not, not as a, you know, to place myself beside her as anything except a member of the family that did this to her. So it's not so much to redeem her, I suppose, as to redeem in a useless sort of way the family and for what, what was done to her. Her story in many ways is not atypical. There were many women like her. Her, her psychiatrist said at one point in the book she was put in a mental hospital for social rather than medical reasons. Yeah. And in the book it is very striking. There are many institutions. There are mental hospitals. There are convents. There are orphanages. There's a lot of confinement. A lot of people being shut away, mm. and their powers of speech or expressing their own stories taken away from them. Mm. Well, it's, it was a form of inner emigration. We know all about um, the floods of people who had to leave Ireland in all those decades, even after independence. Even a greater flood of people because the place was so economically challenged. And I was talking recently to, uh, happens to be a journalist in, in Galway, and his father, he told me, was the superintendent or the chief psychiatrist in one of the asylums in the West. And he said, you know, it's quite true that we, he, this journalist had grown up into one of these institutions as his father's son. He says, you know, it's very true. We knew that, my father knew that maybe even as much as 80% of the people in the asylum were not people with mental illnesses as such, but people who had been extra surplus people on farms and in families, and there was nothing else they could do with them. 
Otherwise, the farm would have been divided up so severely that no one could work it. And they might have been the sort of people who would want to emigrate. So one way or another, they were shifted sideways. And I suppose the word asylum then takes on a new meaning. It's a place of safety and refuge, but maybe this was the, the opposite. I, and I know from my great friend, Ivor Brown, who was once the chief psychiatrist of Ireland, rather wonderful title when you think about it, um, you know, he has told me a lot about the history of asylums and I, the things that were done to people and the way administrations in asylums would put up with quite a lot before they would dismiss somebody, that would be, say, maybe abusive inmates, because they were little kingdoms unto themselves and they certainly didn't like outside interference. So that was another thing that would, you put your great aunt away not only into an asylum but in, in your mind. But is she safe in that place? And she's surely long dead, but was she safe? And what happened to her? That's a sort of retrospective concern. And people just didn't know it was what was happening to their relatives. And I think it was a comfortable idea that they were being looked after in some way, even though they hadn't the slightest idea what was happening to them. Of course, the history, the recent history of the Magdalene laundries has been revealed in Ireland. In a way, the history of the asylums is inaccessible because the records were so poorly kept. Even in the book, Dr. Green has difficulty accessing her records because the mice, the mice have devoured them and all the rest of it. Uh, a lot of records were destroyed as well. And it images in some curious way what happened during the War of Independence when the forecourts were bombed by the irregular soldiers uh, and all the birth certificates of the nation were destroyed. And that makes you think of, of was it O'Higgins saying in the Doyle, because of the Civil War, that we have murdered the baby in its cradle, the baby of Ireland. And, uh, you know, and Roseanne has, has a mysterious child, and that's part of the story as well. And I can see, even as I speak to you, that, that these things are bound up one with, one with another, which maybe shows you that somehow in going for lost histories, the lost histories of these people, these lost people, you may be, you may then start to be talking more accurately about Irish history, that they embody it in some way, and everything else is just the history of the winners, which mm. is always to me a poor story. Mm. You could have taken the decision simply to tell Rosanne's story with all its lacunae and, um, and and gaps and misrememberings, or you could have decided to set her story against the official version. But instead, you've done some. You've done a third thing, which I think is is infinitely more interesting because you've got a second narrator, mm. who is himself trying to get the official history and having all sorts of problems doing that. Mm. And even when he seems to get it, he's having difficulty remember, you know, remembering mm. things that he's mm. read in it. So, mm. it seemed to me you wanted to do things about the, the nature of memory and, and and any form of of story or history. Well, when Devalier, Lear was a very brilliant man. He came. When, when the Irish state was established, he was, him and his companions were, were imprisoned because of the Civil War, because they had tried to disrupt a, the nascent state. But by 1933, he was in power. Uh, that would be the beginnings of the Fianna party. And he was a very brilliant man. He was a mathematician. But he was also very interested in history, and he knew how history should be written. I mean, strangely enough, I got a a letter recently from, from Australia 
and it was from the brother of the man who had written, who was de Valera's historian, and he was writing about another book of mine a long, long way, and uh, how, how, what an interest he'd taken in it. And I thought that was curious, because in some ways I would regard myself as being in the opposite pole of that sort of official de Valera in history. But anyway, that's a sign of the beautiful reconciliations, I think, going on not only between Ireland and England, but within Ireland itself. Um, but de Valera had the history written, and he did say that when he died, that probably Michael Collins would become the hero of the story. But while he was alive, he was going to try and <laughs> prevent that. So therefore, you see already in Ireland, we grew up with the official history, with the unofficial history swimming around underneath it, oral history, oral and memory of older people, memories of the civil war that were never sp spoken of publicly because it was too terrible to speak of, often in direct conflict with some of the nobler narratives. You'd get a history of men going up a mountain to engage with another group of men and one or two were killed. But sometimes the truth of these things were really very terrifying indeed. And and that's what I was trying to just use that in the book in the sense that sometimes those false histories were written truthfully, if you know what I mean. The people writing them believed in them because they were infused with a heroic ideal and they made these histories. So they had a truth for themselves, but they were opposed to other truths. And I think that's, it is probably true in the book that a lot of Roseanne's account can't be factually true, but she has created a narrative which essentially is what any history does. And he has found a more, Dr. Green has found a crueler narrative of the same events, some of the same events, with a narrative written with the point of view of having her committed by a priest, Father Gaunt, many years before. And he's found that, and when he's reading that for the first time, he has no idea of her testimony because he hasn't found it yet, he hasn't been given it yet. She's writing that secretly, hence the title. And, uh, but he, towards the end of the book, he's able to put the two together, and they, they don't match. And he's puzzling over that. At the, at the end of the day, he decides he prefers her untruth because it radiates health to him as a doctor. The other account radiates power, misapplied, given wrongly and used wrongly. I'm sure that the that revisionist history in Ireland that we tend to favour also is imbued with its own ideals. There's no other way of being a human being and writing. So I'm not prioritising one thing over another thing, but I'm interested in the fact that two or three things may coexist. And we, may fi we find that in our own lives. Your partner may say, but look, this, this and this happened on Saturday morning, and you're absolutely certain the three other things happened. And and wars can ensue from that, but that you know, it's the nature of human memory, and the certainty of memory is what creates both the trouble and the poetry of memory. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned Father Gaunt, who, in many ways, is the architect of Rosanne's misfortune because it's is his version of what happened, which really seals her fate and and commits her to an asylum for for sixty years. It would have been easy. I suppose, to paint him as an entirely black figure mm. and an embodiment of, you know, evil and self-seeking. And But you don't do that. And Rosanne doesn't do that. No. And I thought that, that, that made the book resonate in, in, 
interesting ways. Yeah. Well, in a long, long way, the other book about the First World War, I was kind of thrilled in a way, as an Irish Catholic of agnostic Catholic parents, such a thing, to write a priest, Father Buckley, who was a very good priest in the sense that he's given the task to be in the front line looking after whatever wounded men or dying men there are, and he does it nobly. And it was kind of wonderful after all the trouble we've had from priests in the Catholic Church in recent times to write such a man. And when I got, this is only a couple of decades after that, Father Gaunt, but by this time the country was established and the Catholic Church had been almost made like an established church and power, moral power was conferred upon people upon whom it should never have been conferred. I don't think human beings should have that sort of power, but it became radically easy to meddle in people's lives. There was a kind of a myth that we were holy Catholic Ireland and our women were virginally dancing at the crossroads and everyone was pure and nationalistic. And of course the reality disproved it at every human breath drawn in and out. And so there's a, there was a lot of frantic clearing up and mopping up to do. It's a bit, it's on a tiny scale in a very different way and not quite as savage, but in some ways similar to the horrors of Stalinism where he's, he's trying to tidy up Russia, kind of gar garden it, get all the undesirable people out of the picture. There's the same sort of impulse to try and match an idealism with, with the reality and it just couldn't be done. And, and I think people like Roseanne were the victims of that and I, I think in some ways too Father Gaunt is the victim of that because he's been made a powerful, dangerous person. Whereas, you know, 20 years before, like I say, he might have been like Father Buckley, doing something that truly, that would be truly priestly, which would be helping people into the next world. So I, I think I think that's people that were, you know, both supposed oppressors and oppressed were equally victims, you might say. and. I mean, that also comes from a, a statement like Bishop Tutu said a few years ago that there's nothing a man can do that I would not do myself in other circumstances, which is a huge statement and a wonderful statement. And I think that's the only way, that's a statement arising directly out of his efforts at peace and reconciliation in South Africa. And I think we need that. We need to think like that in Ireland. He's a good guy, you know. The relationship between Roseanne and her father is absolutely central to the book and to her her entire life and I wondered because it's so poignant in many ways if you felt as a writer that you had to be a, a, a both a father and a son to, to to really sort of write yourself into that that particular relationship I think you have to be as many things as you can be to be a writer and we're not unless you have other work I, I've done nothing else since 1977 so I'm quite a strange creature but one of the things thank God I that has been, that I have experienced as being a father and having had a vexed relationship with my own father, I didn't have much of a template. So for myself, I more or less inventing how to be a father, trying to rewrite the booklet as were. The New York Times bestseller list, How to Be a Father, would be a good one. It might be a, a long and complicated book. So uh, yeah, I'm hugely interested in that. 
that's one of my jobs. I mean, my real work is as a sort of taxi driver to my children because we live remote countryside of Wicklow and I'm always driving them around and and trying to meet that obligation, you know, and loving to do it. I suppose not having had a son relationship to my father, the idea of a happy relationship between her and her father is a so is 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 my Martian's view of of that relationship, looking at it with amazement and admiration. And I think that's what she has. Although Father Gaunt questions some of the circumstances of the relationship, it's quite evident that that's one of the things that has survived in her, which is just that simple and eternally important love for her father. I wanted to ask you finally, at one point Dr. Green compares Roseanne to a power station and says she's like a power station whose power source has never been drawn on. And I wanted to ask you what you felt was the the engine that kept the, the power station running for those years until the very end when she gives voice to her, her story. Well, to me, she's like, she's like, you know, she's a survivor of something. And, I mean, famously, poignantly, movingly, and very differently, uh, Jewish people who survived the camps would say that, you know, that the, the Nazis could take their bodies, but they couldn't take their souls and their memories. And maybe that's not absolutely true, because you can certainly be crushed down to, cer- to a certain place where even memory is disappearing. And that's obvious. And you might think that a, do- a regional asylum in Ireland in the first half of the 20th century would be exactly the place where that could happen, and I'm sure it did happen to people. And a lot of those people who were put in for social or moral reasons, so-called, undoubtedly would have become mentally ill because they're in a, an environment that would make anyone mentally ill. But she, she can itemize her happiness. And essentially, she admires life and she admires other living things. And she, Roseanne, accepts the gift of life, even in the form it's been given to her. And she's well able to remember how happy she was as a girl working in the Cafe Cairo and swimming in her one-piece bathing suit. And all that's still terribly important to her. And in a way, she's reached a haven uh, with Dr. Green because she's been moved into a better place in Roscommon with um, a rather mysterious man, Amordat Singh, was the head of the place. He's now dead. But Dr. Green is a pupil of his, and and he takes a special interest in her, and she has her own room. And in some ways, she is like a, a wise old saint. And for me, it's, it's, it's dedicated to a woman, a friend of mine who's in her 80s, Margaret Singh, who's a very valuable person. And when you get old, you, you probably people look at you and they pass you by and they think that's not valuable. But to me, that's of infinite value. So you, we used to have old presidents. I think that was wise. Things like presidents of countries should embody age and the wonders of age. And that, I think that's why she has, um, she's able to generate that. Also, she she has an engine of language in her and she has a desire because she knows she won't live that much longer to, to present herself. And I think she lives in the syntax of the way she describes things. Um, it was very exciting to be with her for the year or two. You know, 
she was writing her book underneath me. Uh, it was a, a, quite a strange process, really. I was talking to Sebastian Barry about The Secret Scripture, which is available now. You can hear Sebastian reading from the book on the Faber website. There's also a regular monthly podcast featuring interviews with Faber authors, which you can subscribe to by typing Faber in the search box on iTunes. Thank you for listening to this download, and until next time, goodbye.